If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. It was so full circle to have Mark Masroff sitting in our studio and interviewing what him. What a trip, right? It was just weird because that's how I started that's how I started my career in fitness. That's how all of us started our careers yeah. in fitness. I was a, I was a baby. I was 18 years old. And then, you know, I was a baby manager at 19 years old in the company and the culture that this guy created. And then, of course, you know, Masteroff is a, is a legend in the gym industry because he built the first, the biggest, you know, chain of all time. Yeah. Now what he owns now is growing at ridiculous rates. The guy's uh, extremely successful in all the things that if we take for granted in the gym industry, like collecting monthly dues on EFT, mm-hmm. you know, gyms being open 24 hours, the way that they're organized where you have a, a small box and a big box right next to it to kind of, all these things he pioneered. And so it's really cool to talk to well, him. Well, you got to think this, this guy impacted, especially you and I, at the age of 19 and 20, you know? It's a long time ago for us, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Changed a lot. So that, and for a minute there, it was kind of, I was trying to wrap my brain around this this feeling that I was getting, right? I really, I was like trying to, what is this? You know, why do I feel this way? And it's an unfamiliar feeling for me. And, and what I what I relate it to, or what I think I can relate it to, because I, I don't know this, is I have a lot of um, pent up animosity towards my parents because of the childhood. And I've had to work on a lot of that. Like mm-hmm. it's taken a lot of work for me to um, to love my mother and my stepfather uh, the, to the best of my abilities and to, and to forge a relationship as an adult with them because of my childhood past. And, you know, I, and I see friends and people, and, you know, I mean, Sal, you're a good example, the way you speak of your father, you know, you speak of your father in such a great, so does Justin, you guys speak of your parents in this, this light that it's just like, you know, this, this respect for them, it's insane. And, you know, I don't really have that. A lot of the, the the lessons that I've learned from my parents were a lot of the, the they did a lot of the wrong things, you know. And when I think about like Mark Mastroff and the way he's impacted my life in a positive way, especially when it comes to business and leadership. And it's crazy because it's not like him and I spent a bunch of one-on-one time. That was yeah. his culture, though. Yeah, they, but that just shows you how powerful that is, though, because it gives me that sense of a feeling of like a parent. It feels like this is like dad to me. You know, I even felt myself straightening up the place before he came in. Yeah. So I didn't want him to see our, my messy messy it's, room. It's <laughs> very interesting because I, mean, I didn't really know the guy. You know, I knew of him. I knew his name and I knew, you know, like his importance in the company and the culture and but like immediately I felt the way he's answering questions and his mentality towards things. It's such a direct reflection of you guys and like how I know your character and how, you know, like you managed Adam, me and you know, all those things. It's just, it's, you could just see how he influenced everybody like throughout the entire company. It, it definitely was a direct reflection of his character. Yeah. It's crazy because he, He's, he brought on, trained, and developed, and partnered with the leaders of the gym industry today. Many of them worked with him or partnered with him or worked under him. Mm-hmm. And some of them do other things. Some of them still work for him. But the thing that I always remember, and still to this day, is uh, this insane loyalty people have for him. So it's like, okay. And I, I met him maybe twice in my career. The one time he came to see me. I gave him a tour of the club and another time I won an award and he was there and you know he 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 congratulated me and all that. But 
it's it's funny when you hear people talk about someone like that. You're like, okay, this guy, this person must be pretty awesome. And this is the first long conversation I have with the guy. And now I can see, I can clearly see why he led a fitness uh, revolution. I mean, if you go into a gym today, the uh, if you go into a successful gym today, that successful gym is standing on the shoulders of what Mark Mastroff built back in the 80s and 90s before clubs really knew how to be successful. Um, the first, you know, month-to-month memberships that were done, you know, done by him. And, and that was a crazy, th- if you think about it, back now it's like, oh, that's everybody does that. Back then, nobody was doing that. Nobody was doing a month-to-month. It was like, it was suicide. You're going to give people an option to cancel whenever they want. His attitude was, if they don't like us, they should be able to cancel. So it's our job to keep them. And, you know, it's just a great attitude. And it's it's pretty crazy um, to, you know, to, to be able to talk to the person that kind of started and, and created that all. So, well, the first one to, to show the importance to, I mean, with, when they partnered up with Apex and nutrition and personal training. Yeah. I mean, the nobody, personal training industry has to think what, oh, what yeah. they did. Yeah. I mean, he, 100%. he tells a story in here, you know, it's really great of when he first started in the gym and it was, you know, nine over 90% women and four trainers, two guys, two girls. And very few people even did personal training. He made three bucks an hour. I think three bucks an hour, and he worked a total of like four hours or eight hours or mm-hmm. something like that for a free membership. So it wasn't even really a, a substantial part of the industry or income for most of these gyms. And now it's you know. I, I also think his story needs to be told because everybody's familiar with Steve Jobs' story, right? He starts mm-hmm. Apple, um, then Apple brings in this new CEO. And Steve Jobs basically gets kicked out of his own company, and then just to come back and destroy it, and just go crazy, and just you know become a legend. Yeah. Masteroff started this company, left, yeah. and had to do it, and has done other things, and it's a very similar yeah, you know, kind of story. Interesting about that, like because like he sort of reveals in this episode, like he made sort of an offer to Twenty Four again, and you know I just I couldn't help but think of that, like that Steve Jobs like resurgence, you know, where he comes back and Apple the king is just, back. Yeah, the king's back. I was like secretly, I'm like, oh, maybe someday, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah. he'll reface it and yeah. you know like show him what time it is. But he doesn't really have to. Obviously, he's got all these other awesome gym franchises he's taken over, and they're all like super successful just because of who he is and who he brings into you know. He's got the same team he started with. The same yeah. these same people he worked all those years with now still follow him and still kick ass for him. Right. And hey, look, if you're if you're listening, I guarantee you a lot of 25 fitness people are listening to this right now, or people who've worked through that company. Mark shares some stories on here that he's never he says he's never shared on any, on anything oh, there's, public. There's a little bit of mudslinging going there's on. Some oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <This is> a, <laughs> there's some heat. I was exclusives in here. I wanted I was trying to get him really stirred up because I remember when he left the company and i remember taking when the new ceo carl liebert came in and i remember just oh being upset dude i was upset as an employee you know like i was mad for mark during those times so to hear him share what was going on in the big meetings with the door closed and the stuff that they were talking about and the feelings that he had during that time you know it made me feel good too because there was a part of me like if you were somebody like Justin or later who came in the company and you were like, oh, no more trophies. Oh, another comp yeah. plan change. Yeah, just oh. ripped all those out from us. Right. All these things are like, these things were rolling out. And if you're all the way, you know, inside of a small club, I mean, there's so many levels disconnect from you and the CEO that you may not know, like who's delivering this message, mm-hmm. right? Like, where's this coming from? And I know a lot of people at that time 
had a really bad taste in their mouth about the company. And I remember always thinking like, man, this was such if a- If they only knew. Yeah, if you only knew, this was an incredible company ran by an incredible man for a very long time. And it was such a great place to work for. And it's not it's not the company right now. It's this. Mm-hmm. It's the leadership in this company. And so, man, it was cool to listen to him tell that story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he's, still a, he's still a, a, a behemoth in that industry. He owns, I mean, mm-hmm. UFC gyms and Bro, he's crunch a, fitness he's gyms. He's a bajillionaire. He's got all these yeah. different, yeah, exactly. He's got all these different fitness brands under him. There's a lot of wisdom uh, and, and fun stories told in this episode. Now, I do want to also mention this month, uh, or and remind everybody that MAPS Performance is half off. So remember, MAPS Performance is the MAPS program designed to get you functionally fit. So it's you get lean, muscular, but you're also going to be able to move like an athlete. That's what the program is designed for. It's half off all month long. You have to use the code GREEN50, G-R-E-E-N, and the number 50, no space. You can get it at mindpumpmedia.com. And it is my pleasure to present... Mark Masteroff. So surreal to have you in here. You're, for a long time, you were, well, still, I mean, a lot of um, admiration for what you've done. And I was a young kid that started working in your company, and you were like the god. <laughs> the owner. Yep. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool to have no, you. I appreciate that. But yeah, it's never, uh, never more than what you think. I, I had a funny story. I was in, um, we were doing a, a club with Chicago Bears in Chicago. I'm building a product for them. And the general manager who runs their football operations, a young guy, probably in his mid-30s. And I went in to see him when I was there last time, and he brought me in. He says, you know, I want to let you know my very first job in my life was working for 24-hour. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and he said he came out, he was at college, he worked for 2-4, and then he became like a low-level guy in the Houston uh, organization hmm. uh, for football and worked his way up to like a like a assistant general manager through that organization, and the Bears had just hired him like a year ago. Oh, that's, that's wild. Awesome. So it's pretty that's crazy. Yeah, you're yeah. creating rock stars, yeah. man. You're, you're, yeah. you, we fondly talk about you often and refer to you as the godfather of the, of the gym industry. Um, it, you know, you started uh, 24 Fitness. Now you're doing a lot of other uh, big things. And 24 Fitness at the time became, you know, went from one club to, I don't know, 400 and something and became the first billion dollar, I guess, gym uh, company in the world. Um, and uh, a lot of the ways that gyms make money today was kind of pioneered or perfected by a lot of what you guys, what you did, what you brought to the, to the industry. Because I know before that, there weren't that many gyms that were doing really well. Um, and that's obviously where we all started. If you wouldn't mind taking us back to when you started your first club and how you figured all of that out, you know, how you figured out mm-hmm. how to turn gyms into a successful Yeah, and what the competition looked like at the time business. and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, and cut me off because I can go on any subject as long as you want. So <laughs> yeah. if you say it's too long, let me know. But yeah, no problem. Uh, if you step back in the early days, like you guys, I came out of college, I played ball in college, I, I blew my knee out my sophomore year and rehabbed. And so the docs back then, when they cut on you, it was a railroad track. It wasn't finesse like today. And they said, you got to keep your knee in shape. So when I came out, I joined a little gym near where I was living in, in uh, San Leandro. And a buddy of mine was working there. And he said, hey, come down, check this gym out. So I went down there and they had equipment that I was familiar with, which was called Nautilus. And that was used in the rehab world. 
And so when I got into the gym, the owner saw me and I was, you know, pretty fit at the time coming off sport. And he said, Hey, I need trainers. Do you want to work here? I'm like, I, I got another job. I just graduated from college. And he's like, yeah, but if you work here, I'll give you a free membership. And I was like, Oh, well, I don't have a lot of money. I'll take that. <laughs> and so I started working there like four to eight hours a week. That's all you had to work to get a free membership. And what I found very quickly was it was a pretty successful little 5,000 square foot gym in San Leandro, but it was 99.9% women. Mm. And you're a trainer, and there's like four of us, and uh, two are girls, two are guys. So I was like, maybe one of only two guys in the gym all day long with all these girls from town. That sounds horrible. All these terrible, <laughs> terrible situations. <laughs> and if you hit the town at night and you're at whatever the the you know, place of the venue was, you know, you knew everybody. Mm-hmm. And guys are like, how do you know all these girls? So oh, they're, they all train at my gym. <laughs> um, so I worked there for probably like six months, and then the owner of the gym came up to me and said, "I'm selling the gym. I'm moving back to LA, and I want you to come with me." And I was like, "Well, no." Nah, I'm going to you know, stay up here. Uh, I've got a girlfriend. It's where I live. My family's here. I, I don't really care to move to L.A. So he says, well, i got a guy buying the gym, and he'd like to talk to you about running it. And I was just a little trainer there. I'd do a little sales once in a while. So this guy came and approached me and said, look, I want you to be a partner with me in this gym and, and uh, help me run it. I said, well, you know, what, what's a partnership mean? He says, well, you can invest with me, and, and if you have $15,000, I'll sell you like 10% of the gym. And I didn't have $15,000 at the time. My parents didn't have $15,000, but my grandmother had a little bit of money, so I hit her up and, and she let me borrow it from her. And so I took that fifteen, invested in it. And then this guy really came in um, to build a software front-end system. And so we created a MagStripe system. This is like mid-'80s that would uh, control the front entrance into the gym. And then we had a software system that would control payments and everything else. Now, so, was it the first of its time? Like before yeah. that, it wasn't done like this, right? No, there's no way. Nobody had anything. And he came out of the automotive industry where they were starting to use mag stripes you know, to register your car for maintenance, et cetera. That was his bag. His, his, name was, uh, his name was Gene Heckerman, super smart guy. Mm-hmm. So I ran the gym, and then he brought a programmer at night. For the next two years, I, I sat there and learned how to program in DBase, which was the, the Vogue you know, software at the time, on how to build a front-end system. And it forced me to think about everything mm. from the moment someone entered to the moment someone exited and the building and the collections and the maintenance and how to train and develop your staff. And it really got me to think hard about the business, and I kind of grew it from there. Um, so we set this platform up. And we started opening a couple gyms, and then I started selling the software. And I'd go out to, like, I remember there's a gym in San Francisco that bought it. And they said, well, can you come help us run our gym? I'm like, well, what do you need? He says, we're not doing well. Come take a look. So I, I drove in the city. They had a very successful club. From what I could see, it was busy. But when I got in there, I said, well, let me see your financial statements. He went into his, his office. He came out with his bank statements, mm. like the deposits and, and, and credits. And and uh, debits. And I was like, uh, where's your bank statements? These, these are bank statements, right? I'm like, uh, well, no, that's not a bank statement. God, I have to interrupt you because yeah. the thing that that 24 Fitness did so damn well was the systems that they had in place. Yeah. The, you know, the, from reading, you know, guests that came in the door, people who enrolled, who didn't enroll, what kind of memberships they got, like all of this stuff was, and I took it for granted as a kid because I thought mm-hmm. this is how clubs ran. Nobody, this is brilliant. Nobody, yeah, nobody was else doing had it. analytics like that available. Now, were you also at this time, did you guys start doing EFT at this time as well? So I went to a seminar, probably again, mid 80s, and a company was called Check Free. And they said, we've got this new method of payment where you can bill people through their checking account or their credit card and they can pay it. So it seemed brilliant to me. In the, in the early days of fitness, you charge an upfront fee and then an annual fee. So we were charging around three hundred dollars to join, and maybe a hundred bucks a year thereafter. And you know, when people paid three hundred dollars, wasn't always easy. 
So I went to this check-free seminar and I said, well, geez, I could switch this around. I could charge them 300 bucks up front, then $6 a month into perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And so it was much simpler Then I could break it down where if you didn't want to pay the whole 300, you could pay part of it on a monthly payment basis. And so we created this uh, relationship with check-free. We were like the first gym chain to do it. And we built it into our software so we could manage it. So if you didn't pay, we'd know when you came in the gym, a little red light would come up on your you know, tag as you came on the screen and the receptionist could say, hey, you owe us money or not. And we created all kinds of systems over time and developed it. And then, of course, we had to train the sales staff to sell $6. And, and people would you know, totally say, you're not getting into my checking account. You're not getting into my A lot of resistance card. early on. Tremendous. Yeah. But we, we slowly overcame every objection and got them comfortable and showed them how the banks managed it. And they controlled it. They get their money back if they're uncomfortable. And over a year, two years period of time, we could take that $6 to 7 to 8 to 20 to 25 to 30 And pretty soon, instead of getting $300 a year and 100 bucks a year thereafter, if you could, you're getting $30 a month. And then we, we made a big decision, which was everybody at that time, Bally's and all the big chains were, were contract-based. Mm-hmm. So if you came in, you signed a three-year contract. And we used to have people come in all the time saying, well, I can't join them in this contract. I like your gym better. Or we, we got into a dispute and they took me to court and I hate gyms. So we made a decision and said, you know what, we're just going to charge month to month and have no contract. The foresight for that yeah. is insane because it's almost like I can imagine being at that time in that industry where that was the norm, was contracts. And it's like, I'm sure, were you, were you getting pushback? We're like, oh, you're crazy if you let people cancel whenever they want. Oh, everybody thought we were crazy. But I, I thought it was the right thing to do from a consumer standpoint. I tried to always put myself in the other person's shoes, whether you were part of our team or whether you were a member or, or just the consumer groups. Because if you step back and you're trying to collect a contract, I don't want to knock on your door and say, hey, you owe me 30 bucks. That's mm-hmm. kind of silly. It's like, look, if you don't want to pay, we're not doing a good job. It's on us because we're supposed to service you, take great care of you, and help motivate you to be in the gym every day. And if, if you are, we're doing our job. If you're if we're not, then hey, you know, go someplace else and find success there, or go outside, or just don't train at all. But we thought the onus was on us to service you. Wow, what? And how important is EFT now to being able to collect money first of all through checking or credit card, which now we take for granted, and being able to give people the option to cancel whenever they want. How important would you say that is now for for gyms to to be successful? Well, it's it's the norm, right? You know, some gyms even 24 hour now under their new management have gone back to contract. And so they I didn't know that. Yeah, they they have contract mm. and what they do is they they lock you up for 12 to 24 months and if you don't want to be on contract you pay more, maybe $10 more a month to have the monthly option. So everybody's kind of played it out a little bit differently. I'm still adamantly opposed to contract. We do everything on a month-to-month basis, but it is the norm of what became in the industry and a lot of people adapted what we put in place and CheckFree went around the country to their credit saying, hey, go look at these guys. Mm-hmm. So people used to come out and meet with me and I'd show them what we were doing and they would adopt it and take <laughs> off. But, but in the old days, you'd sit there at the end of the month and you'd have no cash flow coming in. So you do your fifty, eighty, hundred thousand dollars. You pay your bills, and you have to start all over, and you have to grind it out again. Where now you had people that were paying you each month, and you had a recurring revenue base to pay the bills and pay the employees, and have some capital to grow your company, and took pressure off of you, so you could spend more time focused on servicing your members and helping train your staff than you were about trying to sell and collect cash. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, what, what was the scaling process like? I mean, the minute that you switched over to this, did it? I mean, take off right away, or did it take a while for it to start to scale? And what would yeah, that yeah. look like? Were there major major pivotal moments during yeah, that time? Yeah, great question. It, it took a long time because the consumers had a hard time with this process, you know, but we stuck to it and $6 turned into seven, turned into eight, eventually, like I said, turned into 20. But, you know, as the cash flow grew, then what was really interesting is you try and grow your business. And if you went to the banks, the banks would just laugh at you. They had nothing to do with fitness centers in the, the late, early, early 90s. 
you know, we built up in our first 10 years, I think our business was doing about 48 to 50 million in revenue, about 8 million in cash flow. But if I went to a bank and said, look, here's a very profitable business. We've built it. No debt. We don't have one loan on the business, all through cash. You know, we want to borrow $2 million to build a gym or open a gym. They just laugh you out of the room. Oh, wow. Because there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee revenue or whatever. Gyms had a terrible reputation. Mm -hmm. So many had opened and closed over the years that the banks just had a black cloud over our industry. And it took a long time for a lot of us, especially our group, to slowly build relationships where you could borrow a little bit of money to grow. So we grew our first 32 locations to get to this, you know, $8 million in cash flow, totally out of the profits from each gym. So when one gym made money, it opened a second. When that made money between the two, you opened a third, and you slowly grew. We, we couldn't borrow money. We couldn't get debt. We couldn't get any kind of lines of credit. Everything was purely out of cash. Kind of a blessing in disguise because 24 Fitness remained private for so long and got mm-hmm. so big mm-hmm. because it was built on such solid financial foundation where, you're like you're saying, one profits and then it fuels the next one. Now, when you first opened, it was Nautilus. So it was 24 Nautilus. Were you in partnership with Nautilus Equipment with Arthur Jones and all that, or was it just using the name? No, I'll give you a great story. So when, when that little gym was opened up, uh, the guy that opened it called it uh, Nautilus Health Spa. Hmm. And so when I got in there, it was Nautilus Health Spa. And a lot of people say, okay, what happened to 24? How did that start? And what really was is that I was in there opening the gym in the morning at 5, and I was closing it at 11. I mean, didn't have much of a staff. And, you know, at 11 o'clock, I'd try and usher everybody out. People be in the showers. And by the time they got out there, it'd be midnight. I'd go home. I'd have to get up at 4.30, drive down, open the gym. And I was fried. Wow. After about 90 days, I was barely could see myself. So I said, I'm doing something wrong here. So my janitorial group was coming at night. And they'd clean the club at night. So I started flipping the keys to these guys and say, hey, just lock up and open up. Because they were there probably six, seven hours at night. And the guy started telling me that, hey, people aren't starting to knock on the door at 4 o'clock. And I let him in. I'm like, well, sure. And he said, people are staying until <laughs> 1 o'clock. Like, really? What are they doing? He says, guys are just staying. They're working out, pounding. They're coming in at midnight. And I'm like, ah. So I started talking to people and I realized there's, you know, factory down the street coming in. There's police that get off at weird hours. There's medical, firemen. There's all these people that aren't being serviced. Mm. And so I said to myself, well, what if we just open up all night? So I found a kid that worked for me named David Tensu, who I'm still very good friends with. Oh, I know with. who he is. You know Dave, right? <laughs> yeah. He worked with Dave. Yeah. So Dave was uh, you know, uh, in college, and he says, look, I'll work the graveyard shift. So he worked 11 to 7, and he worked those Monday through Friday. And we opened up 24 hours Monday through Friday, and we'd close the nights on the weekends. And then I said, well, shit, let's just throw the, the number up there, put 24 up there, and that's how we turn into 24-hour Nautilus. And that's kind of how we took it forward. That's right. so brilliant because I don't think brilliant. any gym was open 24 hours right. at that time, right? Such a hey, maybe somebody someplace. I don't think yeah. so. We always say we're the first, but there's always somebody tells me, <laughs> I opened up six months sooner. And I always laugh, like, great, whatever. But yeah. uh, Nobody knows yeah. who you are. Yeah. What were, <laughs> Mark, what were, the, what were the growing pains like taking – because I know one of the things that, that people struggle with when, after they make one gym successful – is trying to duplicate that on two, three, four, and five. Great question. Very, very rare that somebody can do that. So what was that like for you going from one gym to 30-something gyms and making that kind of money? Were you able to stay true to your brand and your vision, or would you have a lot of ups and downs? Yeah, it's a good question. The, you know, the hardest, I always tell everybody, the hardest jump is two, one to two. Mm. It's so hard because you're in that one all day long, and it's you. Mm. You build a culture, you're in there making every decision, you're helping everybody, but then you go to two, you're split between two, and now you have to hand off. And then you go two to three, and three to four, you really hand off. Um, the advantage for us was we just really got lucky and found amazing people. You know, guys like Dave Atencio, and then, you know, we, we, 
it kind of expanded and picked up guys like Don Harbick and John Romeo, uh, these people that came into the organization that added culture and experience and were just amazing at what they did. And they helped us build our company. And over time, as you get to 10, 20, 30, you have guys like you that, you know, show up on the doorstep and you recognize talent and you start to motivate and you start to promote and you start to compensate and you drive people up the ladder and, and people lead us. We're going to, we're going to talk about your, your leadership skills in a second. Cause I a hundred percent identified that you, there are people now who are running fitness organizations who are running chains or owning their own chains who started from you until this day, they'll credit you um, and your leadership. And people are always so loyal to you in the organization, even when it got massive. So I want to get into that. But before I do, there was there was a very, there was one point where the company, where 24 Fitness grew very rapidly. And it's when it went from 24 Nautilus to 24 Fitness when you merged or, or bought, or I'm not sure what happened with Ray Wilson's family fitness centers. And I think at the time, if I'm not mistaken, 24 Nautilus might have had 70 clubs, and then when they merged, it was over 120 or something like that. How did that happen, and how did you guys find each other? Yeah, so I'd met Ray. Ray's a legend. He's you know 90 years old right now, living down in Mexico, and he'll probably live to be 120. Guy trains <laughs> 10 hours a day. He's nuts, but he's he's one of the sharpest uh, you know guys ever been around the industry. He probably would sit here if you ever interviewed him, and it'd be a great podcast to do. He has built and sold more companies than anybody. He's also had more companies go bankrupt than anybody you've ever met. You know, monster companies. And I could tell <laughs> oh, you stories. I could do a whole five hours on him. Oh shit! You guys yeah. would be in tears. But he's <laughs> he's he's a pioneer. And so Ray and I had a handshake that neither of us would enter our markets. You know, I'd see him at trade shows. Oh and, wow! And really? He was down in San Diego and SoCal and. I was up in NorCal, and he's like, look, I, I know you guys. You do a great job. I don't want you coming down to SoCal, mess up my thing. I won't come up to NorCal. I said, fine. I don't have any plans. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> I'm not going there. So I'm in NorCal, and then one day I, I hear there's a gym opening up in uh, San Jose, and it's a family fitness center, Ray Wilson's. I'm like, what the hell? Oh, shit. So <laughs> I, I go check it out, and then here's a second one opening up in Fremont, like three blocks from our gym. Oh, so like, he oh, broke yeah. the treaty. Oh, listen here, motherfucker. <laughs> so he broke the treaty. I said, fuck that. So, yeah, yeah. It's on now, so pal. I drove in. I drove my car over, and there's a guy named Eric Levine, the famous Eric Levine, who's running the gym in Fremont. I drive in. I'm like, oh, nice to meet you. You know, okay, I got the game now. Ray, he says, Ray, you know, is going to open like 20 clubs up here. I said, okay. So I hopped on the plane the next day. I flew down to San Diego. I immediately rented a house down there in La Jolla. I shopped the whole market, and I got two sites signed within like 90 days. <laughs> and the difference between the two groups is Ray built small 15,000-square-foot to 20,000-square-foot gyms at the time, which is kind of like what Planet does now. I was building 40,000-square-foot gyms with basketball courts and pools. Kids so clubs. Big Daddy yeah. comes in. Yeah. So I came in, I dropped two bombs right between these clubs, and I sucked them dry. <laughs> I said, game on, baby. We built them fast. And I, I transferred a kid down there who you may know named Curtis Harmon. Yeah, of course. Curtis, Curtis is a legend. And he was Curtis, my vice president for yeah, a while. Curtis was a stud. So Curtis went down there, and we built these two clubs, and we put like 10,000 people in both clubs in a year. Oh, we shit. went nuts. And Ray called me and says, okay, we have to have a truce. <laughs> I said, there is no truce. I'm, ordering, I'm opening 50 clubs in your market. Oh, shit, you tell him that. Oh, yeah. Oh. He like, said, we got to meet. So oh, we met. Um, and so I went out and raised some money uh, with a group called Macau and Duluth based here in the Bay. That's right. And uh, we, we raised some capital. We went and bought Ray out. We merged the two companies. We only had 34 locations oh, at okay. the time. And he had, I think, 70, just oh. 68. He had 68. 
So we came in with 102, and that made us the number two chain in the country behind Bally's. And that kind of launched us. And we learned a ton from Ray. Ray was a great operator. He managed everything very tightly. And I was a little bit looser. I was more about paying people a lot of money and giving people rope to learn and letting them make mistakes, but kind of build their own business units. And so we had a difference in philosophy. Oh, what a perfect marriage then. Yeah, yeah. You, got, you got culture, people guy, meeting with systems guy, and organization guy. That's man. what I was, at, was going to ask. Like, how was that to merge cultures? Because I used to hear rumors when I started at 24 Hour. Now, when was that year that you guys merged? Uh, 96. Okay, see, it was the year before I started uh, 24 Hour Fitness. And I remember when I came in, people would still talk about when that happened. And there was still this comp- competitive, like, the managers from 24 Fitness versus the the guys from Ray Wilson's and who does what and we do, do things a little bit differently and what was that like? What, how how do how were you able to merge that and were, were a lot of those people able to last or did they all a lot of them have to leave? No, we kept a lot of people. You know, Ray paid his people as partners, so he had a lot of guys that invested alongside him. So he had a did a little different structure. We had everybody as one company, then you had shares inside the company. So a lot of our guys, you know, own a piece. And then Ray's, you know, each club would have a different group in there where Ray might own 80%, he might own 20%. So we had to bring all that together. And he had great operators, you know, guys like Ron Thompson and mm. Ray's two sons, Perry and Packy, Steve Kleinfelter. I mean, hundreds of guys were really, really good at what they did. So we we took an approach that I would just come to his meetings <clears throat> once a week and sit down at his marketing meetings and meet with the team. And then I would try to integrate things we were doing in Northern California that could help benefit their business. And the first thing was that, that I created what I called the hub and spoke, which was they had all these small boxes that were, I called dry clubs that were on monthly dues. I said, we need to put some of these big boxes in between them and then upgrade your members to get access to it. Oh, so I we see. would create what we called a sport and a super sport. And that's how we created these acronyms. So I would begin to build these big boxes and the family guys at first were like, that's silly. It's stupid. They don't make money. It's too high overhead. They don't work. I said, well, let's build a couple and see. And we dropped these big boxes in. Not only did they crush it, all their little boxes were upgrading people to the higher dues and they were tripling their profits. Both. And they were like, oh my God, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Oh. Yeah. So that helped grow us. And then we became you know, tighter. And then we added in personal training and ancillary businesses. So family didn't have any PT, mm-hmm. no retail, no nutrition. And we had built all those business units. I remember going down to family and walking them through how personal training would work and how it would be a great service for members and help get them in greater shape and endear them to the brand, et cetera. Most of them were against it. So Ron Thompson kind of led the organization for Ray and they put it in place. And I think after six months, the number one club and family was doing $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I could yeah. do that in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so Ron, Ron's basically said, all right, we're going to create a fine system. If you don't do five grand this month, you get fined $1,000. That's kind of how their, their culture worked for the ownership group and the managers. So they created a fine system. So um, one of the guys went out there and said, you know, I'm going to show you guys I can do it. And he did like 25 grand that month and it opened up their eyes. And pretty soon they started doing 25, 50, wow. 100 grand a month. And and they started realizing that, okay, the guys in North do have some good ideas. I was just going to yeah. bring this up with personal training because I remember when I when I first started Hillsdale, the, not, the, not where it is now, but the old Hillsdale, that's where I started. And when I walked in the doors, I'm 18 years old. And the club's goal, now Hillsdale, even at the time, was considered a, a big club. Yeah. And I remember the club goal was, it wasn't, compared to now, it wasn't huge. It was something like 14, 15 grand for the, for the personal training. And, you know, the top trainers at the time were selling. And, and, and now, com- comparative-wise, they were crushing it compared to other gyms because I think you guys made personal training a big thing. It was you guys that really brought personal training to the, to the, to the mainstream or at least made it profitable. 
And I remember going in there, eventually becoming the fitness manager, and then that club was producing you know, upwards of $100,000 a month in personal training. You have a background in fitness. You weren't mm-hmm. just a sales guy or a business guy. Like, How were you able to see that, that foresight about, because it doesn't seem like the super profitable thing at first, right? How were you able to see that with personal training? Well, people were doing it. It wasn't just us. Other folks were doing it. But what, what we found when we, we wanted to go after, you know, enhancing members' opportunities was is that if we could get them in the gym with a trainer, then they could move faster to get to their goals. And then they became what I used to call walking billboards. You'd show up around town and like, well, you look amazing. What happened? Well, I lost 30 pounds and I've been pounding the weights and I'm in great shape. I've been doing more cardio. I'm training for a triathlon. I'm, I'm working with a personal trainer down at 24-Hour Fitness. And people started getting excited about it. And it created a career path because we could bring people in now. As a trainer, I used to work for three bucks an hour. It's kind of a joke of a job, you know. And I probably hurt more people than I helped because I didn't know what the <laughs> hell I was doing. So we, we hired a guy in, a guy named Chuck Fields, and, and we built an entire training system because there wasn't NASM out there with Mike Clark and all these brilliant guys. We, we created our own training system, and we would certify everybody and made sure they knew what the hell they were doing to, to protect the, the member and the guest and everybody from their workout program. And then we started to recognize if we get everybody in to train three sessions free, then they could buy personal training and enhance. We got a certain number of the members to do it, and it pushed them faster. But it created a great career path for people in our organization to come and make pretty good money. As a kid, maybe nineteen to oh, twenty-two years old, it, you can make good bread. It was brilliant. I, I, that was my first certification, and then I remember the Fit Start. That's what it was. It was three yep. session Fit Start, and then that's how I got all my clients. And which takes me to another question. You guys at that time were paying people compared to anybody else in fitness insane amounts of money. There were general managers making well into six. Fi- I made six figures at nineteen years old, running uh, Salinas. That was the first club that uh, that I got to run. Great club. And I was a I was a nineteen year old kid in the fitness industry. Nobody's making that much money in the fitness industry back in nineteen ninety eight. What got you? And I think that's part of the reason why not all the reason part of the reason why people were so loyal to you is you paid them well. What made you think of that? Because nobody made money in gyms before, especially if you worked in a gym. Yeah, I used to tell everybody, and this was my focus, I never focused on making money personally. I focused on making everybody as happy and as wealthy as I could. And I figured if everybody's doing well, I'm going to do well. And so from the very early days, I said, whatever everybody else is paying, I'm going to make it one and a half to double. Because I felt like the best people would be here, and it's all about talent, talent acquisition. And then I want to give everybody the opportunity. So I felt a good manager should make between 120 k That's what they should make, whether they're 18, 19 years old or 25. That's what they should make. A good regional should be somewhere between 160 and 180. And the VP should make 250 to 400. Mm. And I used to sit in meetings all the time. People would say that you're way overpaying your people. I said, I think we're way underpaying them <clears throat> for the amount of time, energy, effort, hours to build the brand, to get after it. I just felt like people should make as much as they can and have it unlimited. And I know that when I came out of college and when I got into the workforce, you know, I, I wanted to find a commission structure where I could make more. And I felt like sharing it with everybody made sense. And I think the model proved out to to be the right model because we had great talent in our organization. And I think the folks that have left us and moved on have taken that same strategy of paying people extremely well. I know if I talk to the Curtis Harmons of the world or if I talk to the Steve Blocks or even the David Tensos, whoever's out there, they're, they're paying people at, at high levels compared to the rest of the market. You created yeah. a culture for sure. That, that, I remember that culture very strongly. That's why I was so strongly influenced. Do you remember giving me, 
coming to my club and having me give you a tour when I was 18 years old? I, I remember because my, the easy thing is, <laughs> is my sister lives down there. So that's the reason we went into Salinas because I started traveling down there a lot. Because yeah. a lot of people are like, don't go to Salinas, don't go to Salinas. But I loved Salinas and she was living down there. I remember coming in and that was, that was a great club. I loved that club. Yeah, I was a real young kid and you came yeah. in and you wanted me to, you're like, all right, show me. And I remember what it was, and you know we were we were doing some pretty insane numbers. As an AGM, I was selling something like fifty thousand dollars, which at the time was, and you were it was like, crazy, yeah, right? and and you, yeah. and you were like, all right, you got to show me what you're doing. And then what I did is I gave you a, a tour, but because I was a trainer originally, the tour I gave you was about how to change your body, how to get in shape, and I sold you training first, and then the membership to come alongside it. And I remember you looked smart. at me exactly what you said. You looked yeah. at me and said. That's smart. And then you, yeah. you shook my hand and then I told you, give me a club. And then you said, you're too young. And then you walked out. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. The, fu- the funny part about that is that came full circle because not long after you blew up all the numbers there, for many years that became the club where it was like you got sent if you weren't performing. A lot of district managers started sending their guys out there. If you weren't, it was like you're on the way out. First, we get, we let you have like yeah. your mid-range club then you get promoted up. Then you're not performing. Then you come down and then, okay, your last chance is here's Salinas. Let's see if this turns this <laughs> yeah. guy around. Yeah. And I remember remember and I you, you got to tell the story how this happened because I think there was a time when you guys were about to close it and shut it down and I believe that's when you put our good friend Larry Evans in, sure. that, in that place yeah. do you remember that whole thing and how that went down and did what, what was going through your head like were you going to shut it down or what no I think we were coming towards the end of the lease and so it had a 10-year horizon we had to decide to relocate it or mm. keep it there and that that center was getting a little bit tired so we're trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And Larry was a stud. I mean, Larry put Larry anywhere and he could could write gross. And my so dude. I think the team the team said, Hey, let's put Larry down there, see what we could do. But you know, my family was down, my sister was down there, so I, she was in the gym every day. I got a lot of insight. <laughs> <laughs> Probably too much. At times it kind of twists your head a little bit, but but uh, it got a lot of attention. But uh, you know, ultimately you, you gotta make tough decisions sometimes when these leases come up. Right. You gotta say, are we gonna stick or are we gonna move? And generally mm. we we like to relocate whenever we can mm. to kind of freshen because after you're in a box 10, 15 years, it's time to pick it up and, and move it into a new one and build mm. a brand new one. Now, I, I wanna talk about your leadership because that's what always came up. That's what I always heard about. And I worked with, you know, John Romeo, Don Harbick, you know, some of these leaders, I managed, you know, Sunnyvale and, and Hillsdale and some of these big clubs. And anytime I met someone who'd been in the company for any, you know, longer than five or six years who knew you, they would always speak very highly of you and your leadership. And they were extremely loyal to you, which you don't see very often when people work at a company, you know, if somebody leaves or whatever, the boss, nobody cares. We had this crazy loyalty, almost like the Steve Jobs of, you know, it, it was it was different. It was much different. And there was a different experience when you left as well, which I want to get into. But let's talk about that leadership. Like, what was it that made these people so loyal to you? How, how did you develop this culture within where people, it almost felt like they would bleed. We used to say bleed purple. You know the color of twenty four hour fitness. Like, what was that? that yeah. Sure, we're in the Barneys back in the day. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, we, you know, it's, it's it's hard to always describe that um, in full to answer your question properly. But I think the simplest way for me to explain it is: I believe that the pyramid is upside down. You don't work for me; I work for you. I believe that if you need something, I'm there for you, whether it's personal or business or whatever it might be. And so, whether it's tough times or good times, I'm always there. And you know, I, I put a lot of time into building relationships and being there for all my team. And so the pyramid's upside down. If Don Harbick had an issue, I took care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if your goal was to own a car, I helped you get it. If you wanted to buy a house and had trouble qualifying, I found somebody that got you there. Um, if you had a situation that you know came up, I'd try to resolve it for you. 
And my goal was to do what you needed me to do and always be there for you, to make sure you got paid well, to make sure you tucked some money away, make sure you didn't blow it all, to make sure when we went on trips, I, I had your back. And I just believe that um, in the upside down pyramid, I just believe that I work for everybody else. No one works for me. And there's no one's going to outwork me. I'm going to be the first one in, the last one out. And I'm going to be as honest and forthright with everybody and tell them like it is. But I'm going to be there when you need me. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if Jim Rowley calls me and says, hey, I need something, I'm there for him. If Mike Feeney, who is one of the studs of all time, needs something from me, he's got it. Whatever it is. You need a day off, get out of here. And there's times, even like a John Romy, who would never take a day off, I'd come in and say, okay, here's two weeks of Hawaii. I'll see you when you get back. Mm, and cool. he, he'd be like, what the hell? I said, you're out of here. Fuck you, go. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd go for two weeks and he'd tell everybody, Master of me in Hawaii, I got banished. And they'd be yeah. laughing their asses. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just believe that I'm there for you. It's not the other way around. And I'm not going to ask you for anything. I'm just going to always be there. And that, yeah. that it definitely mm-hmm. it definitely worked because well, the, the, the production was insane. Well, I was, you, you, Sal left pretty early. Justin came on after you. I had the pleasure of having both. So I had you for five years, and then I had I had 24 Hour Fitness for five years after. And I've waited a very long time yeah, to get you in here to talk about that transition because mm-hmm. as, a, as one of your top performers and leaders in the company during that time, it was a very rough time for me because I had grown a lot of loyalty to you. I'd won every Hawaii year that I could possibly win that we were there. I'd set a bunch of fitness sales records and you were always like that. You always took care of the people. I mean, I Don Harbick would always send me and Larry over to Warriors games and tickets to Kings games and we'd get stuff like this whenever we have a great month and I felt appreciated for the hard work and it just made me work more. I mean, mm-hmm. I took pride in just working as much as I could because I felt like that was always uh, returned. Now, I remember when there was talk about, okay, we might be trying to go public or they might be trying to sell. And I remember seeing the comp plan starting to change. And for a guy like me, that was, and I saw what they were doing as a company. You know, I saw that we were trying to make this kind of even playing field and you it was homogenize everything. Right. And, and, and I think their theory was to bring up. The, the bottom feeders to more middle of the row. But then what it ended up doing was the few of us outliers that were super high performers, it was cutting into us, you know, because I'd rather make a, a percentage of give or of crushing goal mm-hmm. than to get a higher salary because I, I'm, I'm going to go over so much. So it really started to affect guys like us. Talk to me about that transition when you're still on the board. So you haven't completely left and you are you are starting to we're starting to see that change. What's going on with you on the on the back end? Yeah, so it's a long story. I'll give you in sound bites. You dig in where you want to. Just stop me and okay. say, hey, hey, mm-hmm. and I'll fill in the blanks. But so McCown Deleu was that early investment group we brought mm-hmm. in. They they put a little bit of money into the company in '95, and so we could go out and do that Ray Wilson deal because I I started talking to Ray in '95. It took about six months to get the deal done in uh, summer of 96. So we raised some capital. It wasn't a lot. And then we went and got some bank money and bought Ray out, and he merged some stock in. And so what happens in these investment groups is when they hit the harvest period, it's usually in year 10. So they can invest their money over a 10-year period of time, then they got to kind of cash it out. So McCown Delu came and said, hey, look, it's time for us to leave, and we want to run a process and see if we can find a buyer to take us out. I had no intent to sell or leave. I just would keep my stock like I had been all along, you know, a big chunk of the company, just keep growing. And so we had a, an unbelievable process where we brought bankers in and everybody showed up. 
it was like the hottest thing of the time for whatever reason, just mm -hmm. the right timing. And we probably were looking to get three to five good bids. At the end, we had like 19 bids. Oh, wow. That were all over, call it a, a billion four at that time. And wow. Going up. And we had people like uh, Howard Schultz coming in with his fund. Uh, Mike Milken came in with his fund. Uh, even Phil Knight and Nike came in. They don't buy anything. We had everybody at the table. Oh, shit. Yeah. And so I'm talking to everybody, and it's getting hot. And then we had a group come in at the end called Forceman Little. And Ted Forceman was a storied investor. He uh, built Gulfstream, was his big high flyer. He built it to like an $8 billion company. And he showed up and said, hey, look, I really want to buy the company, but I want to preempt everybody else. And I want to put a big number out there and just buy it right now. No contingencies. You can take all the cash off the table and I'll close right now. But I want to buy 100%. And which kind of took me back a little bit. I was, every other person I talked to, whether it was TPG or Bain Capital, whoever it might be, said, you got to stay in the deal and run this thing. Ted shows up and says, I don't need you. I can run it. Fuck. And I was like, oh, no. so I went to the board and said, you know, this guy wants to put a big number out there. And so, um, but he doesn't need me to stay. He just wants me to stick around the board. He's going to bring a management team. He says he can run it. I don't think he knows what the fuck he's talking about. But you were right. It's a big number. <laughs> yeah. Do you express yeah. this to the board? Oh, yeah. We have a conversation. So we have some other guys in there that are bidding pretty high. Um, so they said, well, what do you think Ted's going to bid? And I said, well, uh, I have no idea, but he wants me to fly down to dinner. So I flew down to L.A., went to his house for dinner, and we sat down, just me and his guys. He said, we want to buy it. What do you think we need to pay? And I said, well, you probably have to outbid everybody by $100 million plus to get the attention of the board. I said, but you know, one of the big issues is you want to take me out and, and bring somebody else in, and I'm worried about the future of the company if you do that. And Ted said, well, look, you, know, you can stay as you know, chairman. You can help guide us, but I, I like to bring a new management team. It's what I do. It's how I've done it. It's what I did at Gulfstream. I think I can blow this thing up, blah, 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 blah. So I said, all right, well, give us a number in writing and give us your offer, and the board will take a look, and we'll decide. So he came in the next day and said, you have 48 hours to make a decision. Here's my number. It was like a billion, six, eight, I think was the number was. <laughs> And so it was a lot of money, and the board said, well, what do you think? I said, well, look, if the guy thinks I can retire, then I can retire, but he's not going to get a no comp for me. So it means I can go do what the hell I want. No competition clauses out, because usually they want to lock you up for mm -hmm. three to five years. Right. And I want this, this. I had like 10 things I wanted. So we counter back, okay, but Mastro, you, you don't have a non-comp from him, and he wants these 10 things, and he agreed to them. And so we got the deal done. So I ran the business, uh, you know, Brian Boma ran the U.S. Brian was, I can tell you stories about Brian, brilliant guy. He ran the U.S. Uh, he had two two senior guys overseeing it, you know, Jim Rowley and, mm. and uh, we had Asia with Steve Kleinfelter at the time. We'd sold Europe a couple of years earlier. And so Carl steps in, you know, well, Ted steps in to run the business. I'm in as, you know, chairman, CEO. Uh, I take us through 06, we crush our numbers. And then 07 comes around, Ted says, okay, I want to go hire a guy on the outside. I'm looking for these qualifi qualifications, military, Six Sigma, big box experience, et cetera. This is Carl Liebert time, And he right? brings in Carl Liebert. And so Carl comes out. I interviewed Carl for like two hours. I think he had four hours with me. We went and looked at some clubs. I spent two hours with him. And then um, he was one of many candidates we were talking to. He worked at Home Depot at the time. And Ted called me the next day and says, what did you think of the Liebert guy? I said, you know, pretty good guy, but I only got two hours with him. I need like a couple of days to give you a feel for what I think. And I need to do some background on him. I want to read some of the information of what his you know, prior jobs have said. He was at Circus City. They went bankrupt. He's now at Home Depot. Looks like a pretty good company. Uh, he said, okay, well, I'm going to interview him. Um, then I'll send him back out to you for a couple of days. So next day, Ted calls me. said, I interviewed Carl. I liked him. I hired him. Wow. So that was the beginning of the Carl Liebert era. Wow. And Carl came in and 
Carl is an interesting guy. I think his intent from the first day was, I want to be the man finally. I wasn't at Circus City. I wasn't at Home Depot. I got this master of guy here. He's the founder. I got to get him the fuck out of here. And Did you feel and, that instantly? Oh, it, was, it was like day one. He went to the, all my team and said, if you work with Mark at all, then you're Mark's guy and you're going to get fired. Whoa. Wow. Oh, and if we wrote the book, I mean, guys would tell you stories that he said. Um, games that he played, it was crazy. I could tell you stories that go on for hours. So I spent a year with Carl um, at the chairman level, let him be the CEO. And we had about 50 million cash on the balance sheet at the time. He blew through 40 of it in nine months. Oh my God. How did he do it? He brought in consultants to tell him what to do. Fuck. How we're going to run our payroll systems, how we're going to change management. Um, he had Bain come in and spend a ton of money with Bain. Yeah, all the stuff I already knew the answers on. And what, what he did is he, he did what I call a tablecloth. He, he basically came in and, and hit the tablecloth underneath to try and get all the silverware and the place to stay on the table. And he took everyone and had them go through a process, if you remember, of uh, interviews and then filling out a test. And so he took a guy like Vinny Farrell, who was the number one grocer in our business for 10 straight years, was top manager, top five every year out of 400 guys, said, you know, his tests show that he should be an operations manager. Oh, He really oh. isn't a great salesperson. So we're going to move him to operations manager, but we'll protect him on his pay. So the op manager who is making 50 or 60K, and he's making 130, we'll pay him 130 as the op manager. And then we'll take this op manager who is making 50, 60K and move him over here. And it just made absolutely no sense. <laughs> there was a mass exodus of talent. You well, know, that's, it, I mean, it was the end. It was the end, beginning of the end. Oh, all yeah. the. All, I mean, I can name off you know several people who were top managers for Twenty Four Fitness who left during that era. It, I mean, a lot of them, and they're all millionaires now doing other mm-hmm. shit because they're talented people. But they left during that period of time. That was a. It was insane, and I felt like it was almost as if. The sales process, uh, the, you know, because those of us who work in gyms, who run successful gyms, understand that I could have the best equipment in the world. I could have all the locations in the world. But at the end of the day, it's the people in there that are going to make make that place successful. And if you don't have a good sales team in there, if you don't have good structure in there and you don't have that process, good luck. And I think what happened during that period of time is they they looked at it as, We've got all the locations. We've got all the equipment. We'll just put the prices up on a board. People will come in. They'll buy what they want and they'll leave. And that's all that's going to happen. Didn't work out that way at all. No, I mean, there's a lot of logic behind you know the theory that they had, which was we're going to change the business. It's a successful entrepreneurially run business, but now we're going to professionalize it and change it into something that we can scale. And in the fitness industry, that's yet to ever been done. And if you look at the history of the industry, anytime you've taken the leader out, of any organization and brought in somebody from the outside, 99.9% of the time it's failed. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But we had 20 years of culture building and a great team that was rocking and setting the world on fire. And Ted came in and wasn't as focused. He brought Carl in, wasn't as focused. And even though in the end, he, when I decided it was time for me to move on, go do other things, Ted told me, look, I probably hired the wrong guy, but I want to see if he can make it happen. And eventually they took Carl out because he couldn't, my opinion. Um, you know, they changed the whole culture of the company. And so mm-hmm. it bifurcated into the competition. So what happened is 24-hour imploded and lost its talent to guys like LA Fitness, mm-hmm. um, Urban Active in the middle of the country, and some of the East Coast players. And then eventually it came in over to us as we went and acquired Crunch, and a lot of folks came into Crunch. And then we built some other platforms. People started leaving, and a lot of the talent went out the door. And so, you know, there's – there was this huge opportunity for the company at that time to become the market leader into perpetuity 
And unfortunately, in the change of leadership, we fumbled. It reminds me of uh, almost kind of what happened with the American auto industry when it was they were just killing it. Their designs were incredible. People were passionate. And then they brought in a bunch of bean counters. And these guys were more engineers than designers. The passion was lost. American auto industry took a dive. And that's kind of what it felt like. There's another question I want to ask you about about the industry at large because you're, I mean, like I said, I've referred to you many times as the godfather of the, of the, of the gym industry. When I was running these clubs in 99 or 2000 and all club membership was, and all club meaning for the listeners who don't know, it means you have access to all the different locations, it was like 45 bucks a month. The initial enrollment when you, at the end of the day, was like $200, $300. A one club membership was 30 something dollars a month. Prices now are a lot cheaper now. And I feel like it started at 24 Fitness later on when they started just lowering prices and everybody had to follow suit. Am I accurate with that or what's going on? Yeah. So I'll give you, I I mean, I I don't run the company anymore, but I watch it. You know, I see it. I got friends there. But what's really interesting is that in the last couple of years that I was running it, Brian Bowman would come in all the time and say, hey, look, Costco keeps calling us. They want us to bring memberships into Costco. I said, what price point? Well, it has to be the lowest that we can possibly offer because that's their rule. Okay, I get that. I know I know CEO Jeff I've met a bunch of times. Um, I don't think it makes sense. I don't think we need to do it. And Brian says, well, they want to do like a two-year, 288 membership. Well, that's crazy. We're charging 45 bucks a month. We mm-hmm. can't do that. We're not doing it. So we'd say, no, Brian would go, I agree. No, 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 no. Well, when Carl got in there, they opened up and launched right after I left the Costco membership which was 288. And you can still go into Costco today. Mm-hmm. And what happened was is the members would go into Costco and go, wait a minute, I'm paying 45 a month, but I can buy two years for 288. Canc- I'm out. Cancel and turn. Cancel and turn, which members are doing today. I was in Costco with my wife. I haven't been in Costco like in two years, but she drug, drug me in the other day. And there's a huge pallet of 24 fitness discounts. And I'm like, well, shit, why are members buying anything? Why don't they just go here? Um, I'm advertising for Costco. Uh, <laughs> and and that, that sucked out a huge amount of the dues base, which affected the business. But it became a drug because obviously they're bringing a lot of cash from Costco. And Costco's happy and they're happy. But at the end of the day, the average price per member comes way down. And because 24 mm-hmm. Fitness was the leader, everybody else kind of started following suit. And I feel like the, the big box gyms have lost a lot of quality. Uh, as a result, now it's become the cheap, like the cheapest membership. Type well, it's of a notch up from Planet. So Planet came in and, and they did a phenomenal job at that low price, ten bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the entry up to twenty dollars a month to get full service, and they started building a lot of product. They've got fifteen hundred clubs now, and so they're opening up next to the the mid box, which is kind of call it twenty four LA Fitness, the mm-hmm. two leaders there, YMCA's, and they were charging in the mid forties, and so they're competing against ten bucks, and they're like, well, if I can get down to twenty nine to thirty five, then Many consumers might say, hey, for another 10 bucks or 15 bucks, I'll go to 24 hour because I get basketball, pool, bigger box, less traffic, less members. And mm-hmm. so they've brought the price down trying to get after volume. There isn't volume anymore for the big box. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a tough space for them to be now, in. Now, I'm curious to, to hear your take because I know we've been talking a lot about the big box, but like as CrossFit sort of emerged into the industry and what they did, um, just to kind of get into maybe the business of that. And if you're very familiar with how they run their boxes and all that kind of stuff sure. and what your take is. I think, cross, I mean, like Curves, CrossFit, there's been concepts that have evolved. I love that he just threw that. Because <laughs> <laughs> we compare those two. So. All the they love that, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's concepts that came out that, that hit a market that was underserved. Mm-hmm. And CrossFit's done a phenomenal job at, at, 
uh, attacking the millennial, let's call mm-hmm. it, or the, I call it the 18 to 25, whose body can withstand that workout. I can't do that workout anymore. <laughs> my back will jack in about an hour. Um, but take my 16-year-old son, you know, who can squat 425 at 16. I wasn't even doing Holy squats shit. then. Wow. Who can sit He's there and bench about 275 at 16 years old. And CrossFit's the ideal workout for that young person that's competitive, that loves camaraderie and group. And likes that kind of that dungeon workout, and it revolutionized a lot of training, and, and it built bodies now where I can see people that walk up to me and shake my hand, and go, "You're a CrossFitter, right?" Yep. And you just see the body type that mm-hmm. they've built from that powerlifting style of member uh, right. of workout. But I think they did a phenomenal job opening up a, a new group of people. To yeah, the fitness I, industry. I feel like a, a lot of the growth now is these smaller, more intimate type boxes. But I do want to ask you because you left Twenty Four Fitness, and it's almost. I've, did they 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 forced you out right? Well, that's I was gonna say you've kept your cool this whole time talking hmm. about this whole process. I just can't imagine what's going because you build something up. It's your baby worth sure. uh, yeah from one club to at this time I think four hundred and something. It's now valued over a billion dollars, and some motherfucker's gonna come in and tell you that you're not doing things right or that there's a better way than this. What is going on inside of you? And then the point where you I believe. I got an email, and I think when the, this day happened, when you were escorted out of your own company. Yeah, no, that wasn't true. It's a, it, none of that happened. What, what was really interesting this this is a real story. I, no one's ever heard this before. So everything I'm telling you today is the first time anybody's heard it. Oh, beautiful! My, yes. my wife might not have even heard some of this. Shit. <laughs> but like I say, I'm always honest. If people ask me, I'll tell you. Right, but perfect. no one's really got me on a podcast to ask me these questions. So I'll, I'll tell you. And, and and like I said, I could be here 20 hours. So the true story is that. I go to Ted. I said, we got to have a meeting. I said, we're, we're going to break our covenants with the banks. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, we're going to break the covenants with our banks. We've blown through the cash. We're not hitting our numbers. Carl's done a tablecloth and, and up, up the whole company. People are leaving it. People are freaking out. People are walking to my office. He just fired one of my top guys because somebody in his organization sold a muscle melt case to a um, uh, GNC because they couldn't move it from the club and it was about to expire. He literally took a guy, one of my one of our top guys. I, I could give you the name, but I don't, I don't think this guy wants me to say it. He was a, a regional vice president, and one of his gyms, a, a OM, took a case of muscle milk that's going to expire and went to the GNC. Can you buy this from me so you can sell it? Because I always got to throw it away. He fired him over that. Wow, mm-hmm. that's like smells. That sounds like a smart business idea. That's yeah, incredible. yeah, and that created this wave with everybody freaking out because he wanted to set precedent that you follow the rules, you're out of here, and that's just mm-hmm. not the way this industry works. It has to have more flex. But so I go to Ted. I said, "We got to have a meeting. We're going to break covenants." So we go in. I fly to New York. Carl's in New York. I explain what's going on. Carl says, "I'm full of shit." I open up the books. Ted looks at numbers. He goes, "Mastro's fucking right." What the fuck's going on? He throws me out of the room. He and Carl have a, a big meeting. And then um, Carl just basically buckles down and, and comes to me with his tail between his legs and says, hey, what are we going to do to fix this? I said, well, uh, you need to do this, this, and this here in the U.S. And I'll go out to Asia with Steve Kleinfelter and, and we'll crush our numbers out there and oversee that because I was overseeing Asia. Still, Carl wasn't touching Asia. Mm-hmm. So Steve Kleinfelter and I had a monster in Asia, blew out our numbers, and Carl took the U.S. and we just got over the hump. At that point, I came back into Ted and said, look, I, I can't stay with this guy. He's he's basically blowing out all my guys, and they're all going to the competition, showing up at LA Fitness. Uh, Chin's calling me up at LA Fitness saying, hey, look, I, I got another one of your senior guys showing up. What should I do? Because we have a good relationship. I said, look, if he wants to go there, pay him well, hire him. He's amazing. Um, nothing I can do to stop you. So I said to Ted, I said, it doesn't make sense for me to stick around. He says, yeah, 
He says, do you want to stay on the board for a couple more years and just kind of help us there? I'm like, ah, I think I'm going to go do my own thing. So I went to Ted, says, okay, um, let's put a resignation together. So I resign, and I hand it in to Ted. Ted sends it off to Carl, and then Carl calls me up and says, hey, buddy, you know, sorry to see you go, um, but you have a non-compete, and I just want to make sure you're going to adhere to that. I said, well, actually, Carl, I don't have a non-compete, oh, and I am not going to adhere to that. I'm going to be your worst fucking nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I thought you did. I thought you had a five-year non-compete. No, no non-compete. I mean, I did oh. the crunch deal six months later. So Carl went off the deep end, and, and he put a press release out the next day saying Mastro have left the company and we wished him well. And then he went and put all the senior leaders in and said, he's out of here and I'm in charge now. And he did a bunch of stupid shit that everybody got pissed about. And next thing you know, my phone starts ringing. So, you know, Lorenzo Fertitta calls me from the UFC and says, Hey, I want to meet with you. Angelo Gordon calls from New York, says, Hey, we got this company crunch. It's not doing well. I want to meet with you. And Carl sends all this business my way. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, what a fucking idiot. <laughs> so, you know, there's a bunch of stuff in between there that I could go back and forth. But, you know, Carl wanted to be the guy. And, hey, great. Good for you. But, you know, I always find that if that's the case and he's a military guy, you always keep your enemies close. Yeah, exactly. And he didn't keep his enemy close. You know, he did everything he could to get me out of there by telling people that, look, if, you, if you're a master of this guy, I'm going to find a way to get you out of here and you're not going to work for me. Wow. And then he just, you know, slowly isolated everybody. Anybody that had anything to do with me, he just found reasons to terminate everybody. And that's all the best talent. So they'll probably come your way. Yeah. I mean, Mike Feeney was, you know, probably he ran construction and and equipment purchasing. He's probably the best in the industry. Everybody would say right now, he's the godfather of that space. Mm. Um, Everything he does. And he let Mike slip out of there. And I grabbed Mike an hour later. And Mike came over. He's so pissed off Jim Rowley, who was pretty much running the whole company at that time. And Jim's a military guy. He's a Marine. Uh, Jim built our PT business from nothing. You know, 80 million a year, he took it to 300 million a year. The guy's a phenomenal leader and is now my partner. He, he blew Jim out of there. You know, and that was <laughs> wow. like three months after Whoa. I left. And then he blew Steve Kleinfelter out of Asia. And they, they replaced Steve with another guy that took that business in two years from, from at that time we were doing 25 million in profit in 24 locations in Asia in about six countries. They took it to bankruptcy in two years. Oh my goodness. Sickest thing I ever saw. I can't wow. believe it. That's insane. I, I mean, I wrote a letter to Ted saying, what the fuck? Um, but so many things they did made no sense to me. And all they did was do the same thing that everybody does. First thing you do is you point to the former leadership saying, ah, oh, those guys fucked it up and I'm trying to fix it up. The second thing is, is that well, I need more time because you know it's worse than I thought. And the third thing is, I fucked it up. <laughs> yeah, get me the fuck out of here. Oh, no. So it just takes time. But you know, he he wasn't the right guy, and maybe where he is now, he's the right guy. But he wasn't the right guy when he came in, and he took twenty years of an amazing culture, an amazing team, and people like you, and blew everybody out of the water. Mm. And those that stayed, God bless them, they held on and kept the company afloat. But it never amounted to much. No, it never amounted. In the oh, meantime, I, it got its lunch, its lunch eaten by uh, LA Fitness, who saw the opportunity and blew right by him. I talk about the, I was able, so I watched all these talented people that were all still remain my good friends that have gone off and done great things. And they all asked me, when are you leaving, Adam? When are you leaving? And I said, you know, I still like fitness. I had created a name for myself. They had grandfathered me in on the pay. And I'd ever, I never worked so little and made okay money and nobody touched me. And that was the only thing that kept me around there. And I, I remember thinking what made me finally leave was I kind of reflected on the, my, the, my last four years there and went like, this is not what I want. Like at the early years, I was so competitive and driven. And if you would have asked me, I would have said I wanted to be a VP in the company. And 
Now it was all about how little could I do and still kick everybody's ass. And I gave so little. I could give 60% and still outperform all my peers. And so they left me alone and I just kind of cruised for four years. But it made me realize how important that is. Like they, no, If you just look at numbers and that's all you see, you would see me as a guy who's getting his job done and nobody did anything to me. But then you have no idea that there's a whole other level or gear that I could be giving you that potentially for a club where I'm managing anywhere between fifty dollars to $80,000 a month in PT, that's a lot of revenue. That's a half a million dollars a year. And me putting down an extra effort, it gives you another 20%. Multiply that by all the facilities that you have. Plus, talented people tend to be, yes, money is always a motivator, but we're also driven by, you know, by meaning, purpose. We're driven by our ambition. And I'll tell you, Mark, I was I was a kid. I was a young kid. I was 18 as a fitness manager, 19 as a general manager. I was making 120 grand a year and I lived at my parents' house and I drove a Volkswagen. I didn't know the concept of money. It really didn't care about it. Now, why was I there 15, 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week? It was the culture and I loved it and I enjoyed it. But as the culture starts to change, you lose that and you get the people who come in who punch in their cards. And my understanding of the gym business is the difference between like really succeeding well and failing is the difference between having people who come in and punch in and punch out and the people who are really passionate. That's really the big difference. And, it, and a lot of that was lost when the leadership lost. And it just always, it goes back to showing how important leadership is. And I think especially when it comes to gyms, because look, I can walk into a gym and in five minutes, I can feel the culture. Forget the equipment. We were, where were we? We went to, it was Texas. We went to this gym, big text gym. And it's mm-hmm. this, old school gym. I mean, there's rust on some of the equipment, some of the equipments. It's old school. It's chalk everywhere. We walk in there, we felt the culture right away. And we're like, this is a great, this is one of my favorite gyms I've ever walked into. And I think people who get in the fitness industry who don't come from that, don't understand that. And that that can, that tends to be, I think a big problem, but I do want to ask you how, how satisfying is it now to compete against 24 fitness and to kick their ass with, with all the clubs that you have? Yeah, good question. I, I don't really pay much attention to twenty four. Um, we always, we always like Jim, Mike, and I, and, and you know, um, one of the great kids that we work with now is Brian Calgary. I don't know if you got to work with him, but uh, Brian's a stud. And you know, we get out there and we we say, hey, do you feel twenty four? Do you feel LA Fitness? Do you feel who do you feel out there? And a lot of times you just don't feel them. Mm. So we're not sure what they're doing, but I look at it with a lot of pride. Um, I look at the leadership changes they've made as they took Carl out and they brought a gallon who just stripped out all the costs and they sold it. And then they brought in Mark Smith, who I know really well. Mark ran for a few years. They took him out and now they've got a new guy in, came from the healthcare industry, Chris, who's trying to run it. I get a kick out of people that want to learn, don't want to learn. I think Chris got the job about a year, year and a half ago, maybe. And he's trying to do some things inside. I think he sent me an email like, hey, um, I just got the job. I've heard a lot about you. I'd like to meet you. I said, hey, I, I'm 10 minutes from your office. Call me anytime. I'll be happy to buy you lunch and kind of give you any history I can and never heard from him again. <laughs> so I look at people like that that don't want to learn and don't get it. And they just want to come in and make their mark. But I watch what he's doing right now. And I'd have to give him a lot of coaching. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's some things I don't agree with that he's head down the path mm. of, of Carl Liebert again. So mm. we'll see what happens. But there's some great people inside 24-hour I have a lot of respect for, and, and I hope they do well. It's a great brand. I, I, you know, I tried to buy it back twice. Um, they wouldn't sell it to me. My price was bigger than anybody else has paid for it. 
Um, but those guys oh, were I didn't so... Know, I didn't oh, know yeah. that you were going to mm. try and grab it again. Yeah, I, it was so messy. I just felt like someone's got to come fucking clean it up. And so <laughs> yeah. I came in and said, look, I'll make you guys an offer. And I had the capital and I made a bigger offer than what Mark Smith bought it for. But I think they were so nervous to sell it to me. They're afraid. But at some point, maybe it'll come back. So I, I want to stay nice. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, we're building other companies. that will be bigger yeah. than them. Crunch will be bigger than 24-hour by probably the end of next year. Oh, let's talk oh, about wow. all the different brands now under your umbrella. And some of them are so different mm-hmm. from one another. I know you have uh, like the, the – there's the hard candy, like mega Madonna gyms. You have Crunch. There's UFC gyms. There's – Yoga. Yeah, the yoga works. All. So are you – what's the strategy now? Are you trying to hit – different niches and markets because right. it feels like it's a little more niche. The like latest, the NFL too. Yeah. yeah, they seem more niche. Are you trying to go in, into the market that way? Or Yeah, good question. So when we started looking at the space, you know, 24, we were just basically uh, building that same product, you know, sport, super sport. And we started building a kind of what we called an active club, which was kind of what the Planet Club is like. And we were messing around with building what Anytime built. I had a franchise concept. And then I had a small box concept. I had everything lined up. So we'd be kind of like the Marriott. We'd have 10 different pieces of product we could build anywhere. Mm, And that was on Carl's desk. He could have been anytime if he wanted to be because we had a 5,000-square-foot franchise-type concept. We had a curve-style concept we called FitLight, which was 2,500-square feet circuit-based. We had all that stuff built, but he he canned all that stuff. Um, Having said that, I thought – you know, as we spent time talking, took, you know, Mike, Jim, Brian, a bunch of us uh, and said, you know, do we want to be in that middle or do you want to be at the bottom and the top? And it felt like the equinoxes of the world um, and the crunch, which was a little bit more high priced urban was a way to stay competitive. And probably down that $10 space was pretty, pretty much a space to be in. So Ben Midgley, I don't know if you know Ben, but Ben worked for us at 2-4 in corporate sales. And he was a direct reporter of mine for probably six to eight years. Super, super smart guy. He left to go back home to Kitty Bunkport, Maine, where he's from, and he took a job with uh, Planet Mm. and became their president, running Planet. And then another kid by the name of Craig Pepinana, who I recruited out of New York Health and Racket, was a phenomenal asset for us. He came in and became our first president running 24 hours. I stepped out so he could run day-to-day. And then he became my EVP of sales and marketing global. Mm. Super smart guy. So he 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 moved to Jacksonville. His his uh, mother-in-law was was um, very ill and, and his wife and he wanted to get back. So he moved back there. I sold him a couple of our clubs and he based there. He and Ben became good friends. And then when Ben left uh, Planet, he called me and says, look, I want to start a low price concept. So he, Craig, and I were getting together, and Jim, Mike, and I. And so we started a concept, and then Crunch came calling. And so we merged it into Crunch and created that low-price concept, similar to what Planet does. But we added some twists to it. We threw in Group X and personal training and Mm -hmm. nutrition and built a little bit bigger box. And so that company now has started a franchise the last five, six years. We'll open 80-plus franchises this year. Next year, we'll do about 120. Wow. Mm. And we've also gone global. We cut a deal with Cristiano Ronaldo in Spain, who's now in Italy, of course. Oh, shit. So he's our partner in Europe. Um, we've opened up in Australia. Uh, we're opening up in Canada and a bunch of other countries, and this thing's doing phenomenally well. And Ben's led the franchise side. Then we picked up, when we bought Crunch with Angelo Gordon, we merged uh, and did a deal with them. Um, Keith Wirtz was a COO. Now he's a CEO. He runs the own product, our urban product, which is in New York and Miami, L.A., and San Francisco. And so we have a great team, and then a bunch of our ex-guys are in there operating that mm. are doing phenomenal work, 24-hour guys that are, are, came over after they left 2-4. Yeah. 
And so that business is growing like weed and, and doing great work. And then um, Lorenzo called me. He was the first person I talked to, and, and I flew in. And I've been a big UFC fan, been going to the fights for years. So he called yeah. you. That's, yeah, he that's called awesome. Me, yeah, he called me. He, he reached out and said, hey, um, so you left too far. You know, we knew each other a little bit. He said, come see me. I want to do something together. So I flew into Vegas, and we had a two-hour meeting, had a handshake on a 50-50 deal to open up these UFC gyms. And we started building those, the first one being in Concord here in the Bay Area. And the concept was to show people that, you know, uh, the fighters aren't all about bloody messes. It's about the discipline, about learning, and the respect around, you know, mixed martial arts. And so we built fitness facilities that were aimed at, at families and kids and for everybody. And so it's a, it a gym with mixed martial arts programs. So I don't know if you've been in them yet, but they're like um, – it's like going to a UFC fight. It's it's loud and bright, and it's got a lot of the CrossFit. They're style my favorite gyms, there, and they're amazing yeah. places to train in because you can. They have all bags, kinds of equipment. Everything, everything. It's Mike Feeney's done a phenomenal job building those out, and we've taken the UFC culture and put it inside these boxes. And then Adam Sedlak, I brought him in to run it, and he's done an amazing job building the company from one up to where we've got about twenty pieces of product we own, and about another one hundred and fifty that we franchised. And we start taking out global now, and so we're in. 20, 22 countries right now that we've sold, and, and we have four big ones we're about to announce here in the next uh, six weeks. And we're probably into a thousand units sold globally right now. Wow. So that, that business is blown up, and we're having a lot of fun with it. So I looked at, like, you know, I wanted to have some fun and build some businesses with some of the team that we spent time with at 2 4 that had left, and just picking people up off of, uh, call it free agency and <laughs> yeah. the waivers yeah. and whatever else. Like I look at the 24-hour waiver wire and say, okay, they, they let you guys go. Okay, Sal, come on over. I got you. Uh, what were you making? 120? I'll give you 180. Let's go. And if you're happy and off we go. I'll give you some stock and, and give you a business unit. And then I was doing a lot of stuff. When I when I built 2-4, I would get calls to come speak. So I'd speak all over the country. Then it'd be like, hey, I want to open some gyms. And so I started doing partnerships all over the world and I was building quietly in about 30 countries, and, and the board was cool with it as long as I wasn't spending a lot of time on it. So I'd invest, put teams in place, and you know I, I just have companies, more companies than people know about, I keep very quiet about, mm -hmm. but have built a bunch of businesses and, and probably now approaching about 45 countries around the world, and, and I'm operating in a bunch right now. That's, that's what so is, awesome. What is it that drives you? Obviously, it's not money, because I, I know you're at a point in your life where you probably don't need very much. So what is it that drives you to keep doing this, to keep expanding, to keep growing? Uh, yeah, it's a, a good question. People ask all the time. I, I think I'm very entrepreneurial, so I love building things. So as an example, when uh, you know, everything's a story, and so I think it's all about relationships. So in, in Dallas, there was a club chain that was bugging the shit out of us, and it was owned by a guy named Johnny De La Vandane. And so I went out and, and uh, saw Johnny and said, look, I want to buy your clubs because you guys keep undercutting our pricing. You keep flying our parking lots. You're driving us freaking nuts. My guys out here hate you. I want to buy your gym chains. He goes, well, I'm not selling. I said, well, come on. There's got to be some price you want. He says, well, I'll tell you what. Go to dinner with me tonight. We'll go drink it. If you can drink me out of the table, I'll let you buy my my company. That's that, <laughs> is, that a real, is that a true story? It's a true story. That's hilarious. Johnny will tell you. So I, Mike Apple was running that market out there for me. Mike's, Mike's here in the band. Mike started at Hillsdale. Mike's my boy. So Mike yeah. was the v, uh, he was my vice president for a long time, and I still talk to him every once in a while. Mike, yeah. yeah, he's over in Sunnyvale. So Mike, Michael validated this just Because just if you know Mike, the end of the story, you'll love. So I, I go out there. We have dinner. We go out drinking. Mike's with me. I bury Johnny in about three hours, <laughs> shot after shot after shot, because I'm Russian. You ain't going to fucking out drink me. <laughs> I bury his ass. I fire him in him on my shoulder, and I dump him in his car at the end of the night. He's got on this nice big old Rolex, 
And he's like, okay, fuck, I'm selling my company to you. Here's my Rolex. And I go, I don't want your fucking Rolex. And Apple goes, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, he's never given him back his Rolex. No, Apple has that Rolex? He still has it. Oh, shit. So every time Johnny sees him, he gives him shit. So oh, we buy the company from Johnny. I give him stock. So he makes a shit ton of money. And we become friends. The Dallas Cowboys call him up and say, hey, he knows the Jones family. They said, we want to build a gym in our new complex. We need some consulting advice. Johnny says, well, don't talk to me. You got to talk to Mark. He calls me. I fly out to Dallas. I have breakfast with Stephen, Jerry, and Jerry Sr. And in two hours, we have a handshake on a partnership to build gyms and help develop their complex. And that's kind of what bore the uh, NFL club concept. Mm. The point being is that it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And I love the relationship I have with Johnny. He's funnier than Shay. He's the greatest guy. He's entrepreneurial like I am. But he he builds things. So he comes up with the concepts like you've seen the marshmallow gun. That's his. <laughs> he, he came up with that idea. You've seen like uh, where it looks like someone hit a ball in a window of a car and it's like a sticker you oh, put on Oh, it's all broken door. glass yeah. looking? That's his. Oh, he's, shit. And he's done a ton of reality shows and all kinds of stuff. He's just very entrepreneurial. And huh. Like me, he's, he's free spirit. And we have a lot of fun together. So, you know, relationships is what the world works about. We have a relationship. Obviously, you work together, and so you bring me to the show because you know me and we've, we've spent time together. I haven't done anybody else's podcast. I've been asked, but I come because you know we know each other. And so that's how I think life is. And for me, I, I enjoy the ride. I enjoy building things. I enjoy seeing a great outcome. I enjoy overcoming odds and uh, fighting through everything. And, and there's so many fights and everything you've built. And if you pick countries, I could tell you stories for hours. Says, you know, we've gone into different countries around the world, and some of them very difficult, some of them very easy. That's, on, that's on, amazing. On a relationship note, on that note, I love that. And I think that's so true. What are, what are some of the strongest bonds that you've built and maybe some people that along the way that were relationships that you built, maybe even mentored you a little bit? Who have been some of the most impactful people for you? Yeah, great question. So one of the early partners I had was a guy named Leonard Schlem. Leonard was a Harvard MBA in finance and Canadian. And when I launched the, uh, when I invested in that first club with uh, Gene, Leonard worked for Gene as his CFO. And so he had Leonard come in and help us with the books. And Leonard eventually invested with us. And then Leonard and I became partners as we bought Gene out together. And so he was a great mentor. He taught me finance. He taught me how to be smart about finance, how to raise capital, how to do deals. And so he, he kind of gave me my, my groundwork training for my, my first 10 years. And as he always says, after that, I kind of blew by him and, and moved into the big leagues as he moved back to Canada and, and uh, did quite well with his shares <laughs> of stock that he had. Uh, but Leonard was phenomenal. And then different people along the way. Ray Wilson was amazing because every day Ray would tell me, you're going to go bankrupt. You're going to go bankrupt. I go, Ray, we're, we're fine. We're throwing off a ton of cash. Yeah, but the world could change tomorrow. You know, he, he was always afraid. And he would beat on you to make sure you didn't make mistakes because he'd made so many mistakes in his life in the early days and lost companies that he didn't want us to lose ours. And when we came through that big check at the end, he didn't say shit to me. <laughs> He's like, good job, good job. <laughs> so I always laugh at him. But Ray, Ray was great. And then people along the way, I learned from everybody. Uh, Jim Rowley, you know, he's very disciplined around the way that he operates. Mike Feeney, who always has a tendency to say no. You know, I, I'm a guy who always says yes, and Mike likes to say no a lot. So, um, and then you got people around you that you meet along the way that, you know, you sit down with. You know, Ted Forsman taught me a lot of things not to do. And I think you learn a lot of times from that. Absolutely. And Ted taught me some things to do. He was very good about some things. He hired people that I, I wouldn't hire that, you know, he thought were smart. Because you're moving so fast, you make mistakes. So I have a tendency to take my time. I like to grow from within. I don't go outside too often. I, I do what mm-hmm. I need to, but I'll take somebody like you and say, hey, let's spend five years and get you to a point where you can hit your dreams. But at the same time, I can develop you and help you 
grow and be the best you can be. That's excellent. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're, you come across as somebody who is super honest, not afraid to say what he's going to do next because he's afraid of his competition. And you're also extremely experienced. So you're the perfect person to ask this question. What do you think in terms of the future of this of this business? What do you think the because the, it's changed and shifted quite a bit in the twenty years I've been I've been working in it. Um, where do you see the big growth opportunities now? Yeah, great question. I think what you guys are doing, I think um, getting into the what I'll, I'll call the digital space around podcasts and YouTube and education. I think there's a big opportunity. There's a, a few companies that are starting to scale and do well. Uh, take a look at um, Peloton. Mm-hmm. You know, Peloton's built themselves as a media company now. They're not a bike company selling subscriptions anymore. They're a media company. And they went from a billion two round of capital to six months later doing over a $4 billion round of capital. So I think that if you look at the space, it's moving to the home again. I think that a lot of folks are trying to figure out how I can produce and bring exercise into the home and content into the home, similar to what Peloton's done. So there's a lot of people throwing that space. There's VR and AI coming. Mm-hmm. So VR is going to be very big. But you know, for me, it gets me a little dizzy. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to do that. Maybe that'll change in time as they figure it out. But if you use the Oculus glasses, wherever you might be doing the goggles, it's hard for me to stay in that thing for 30 minutes to sweat and work out. But it's coming. So I think community is still important. I still think that people need to get together to work out, whether it's in a park or a bike ride or a marathon or or a gym. That's still going to be out there. Um, But the millennials are buying in a different way. And then this Gen Z that they're calling now, which is those born after 96, as they start to evolve here and they're buying power, which is going to be far superior to the millennials. There's more people born after 96 than you know. It's going to be something approaching 18 to 20% of the population base. And it's a very diverse group of people, very ethnically diverse. And and I think that that group's going to shape the future of what we all become because the baby boomers led fitness, right? You know, Kennedy's whole you know exercise program he built in the early 60s mm-hmm. and the boomers coming through, that kind of evolved fitness in the 80s and 90s into 2000. And then every other group, Gen Y, you know, call it millennial, Gen Z, that's kind of shaping it. But I do think that community will play a role. I do think that people are body health conscious like never before. And I do think that the future is very bright because everyone's entering this space. I mean, the number of meetings I take, the number of people that come in with ideas and concepts is like triple what I've ever seen before. Agreed. Mm. And one of the biggest things that we saw when we first started the podcast and one of our big goals, when we all sat down to start this business we talked about trends that we saw and things that we could, you know, capitalize on and things that we wanted to communicate. And one of the big ones was in in the fitness space, especially as a personal trainer, that you had your your fitness experts who were build muscle, burn body fat, watch your macros, count your calories. And then you had this wellness space, which was about health and meditation and organic and they didn't communicate. They didn't talk to each other. If you went to the supplement store and you bought a protein drink, finding an organic protein drink was impossible. All of them looked like they were steroids because that's what they would try and make it look like so they could sell them. And we talked about how those two industries would are merging and are going to continue to merge. And you're already starting to see it. You're starting to see it with the supplements that are being sold, the, the way people communicate things. We started this early on. We look like three meatheads, but we talk a lot about wellness and health. And it was a bit of an experiment when we first started but it seems to be resonating and we see more of it happening. Is that something you're seeing now on the gym side as well? Yeah, I mean, we, we were big in nutrition very early on, as you know. So we had Apex, which was Neil Spruce's right. company, which he now has Dot Fit. And Neil is the godfather of, of what I call 
programming nutrition. He did nutrition analysis at Gold's, and then he came into 24-hour, and we built a $100 million business unit together, and now he's built this monster company at DotFit. So we always found that nutrition is about education. So it wasn't about selling you nutraceuticals. That was great. That was a byproduct, but it was about teaching you how to eat right, how to live your life right. And so now there's so much information coming out at you. My, my wife's a voracious reader around health and nutrition. She's a, a big fitness nut. Um, and so if you read the book, How Not to Die, I don't know if you've read that yet. Mm. It's about 500 pages. It basically gets you focused on plant-based diet mm. so that you're a little bit more off of, of meat and a lot of the products that are bad for your body. It teaches you a little bit and educates you a little bit about that, about alkaline water. I don't know if you're doing alkaline water now, but that's like the new push mm -hmm. to cleanse the body. Uh, the brand I like is Generosity. It's very clean. It's probably got the highest pH level, but super good alkaline water. Um, and then there's a lot of product that's coming in to educate you more and more on a daily basis around how to eat better, how to be, eat smarter. Restaurants are um, bringing in organic and clean, and you're trying to get more vegetables on your plate and less uh, meat. Uh, less dairy too. So yeah. it, it depends on where you are in your life. When you're 16, like my son, he's invincible. It doesn't matter. He, he, he he'll do anything. He doesn't care from Taco Bell to, you know, you know, he'll go to Chipotle twice a day. Right. Um, and then you've got, you know, people that are in their thirties that think differently and you get into your fifties and sixties, you think, you think a little bit differently too. Yeah. Consumers seem much more educated nowadays as well. Way more. And every day you learn more. Mm -hmm. It's moving very, very fast right now. What do you think from a, like a marketing perspective, what you see happening with social media? I mean, I think that's completely changed since you've been in the space. It's changed since I was in the space. I mean, I wasn't somebody who even had a Facebook. I remember I had MySpace for a little bit as a kid and then really didn't care about social platforms when they first came out because all my friends were in real life. And then we started to see this. And I remember hearing it. I remember hearing people say, like, you got to be on Facebook and you got to be on these platforms because that's how business is going to be done in the future. And I remember being like, yeah, yeah, well, when I meet the first person that actually has built a, a big business off of Facebook, then you'll sell me. And then that eventually did happen. And then, then later on, I got into the space and now I see what's happening with all these platforms. What do you think about that, like from a marketing perspective, and are you starting to implement that into your companies? Yeah, we have for years. So, you know, the social media digital space is what drives the business now. Most all the businesses are very focused there. But we still do a lot of the grassroots basic things that you need to do that others aren't willing to do by working in the local community to create, you know, awareness and touch people as much as you can. But most of the budgets are spent around that. So if you take a look at somebody like a 24-hour, I'd say 70% of theirs goes into digital and probably 30% goes into billboard, and that's about all they do. Mm. Um, so that's their focus. Um, that's a good point you make, though. You don't want to forget about touching people in your community because I think CrossFit kind of proved that, right? Like people went there, their workouts are hard and all that stuff, but really it was well, the that's community. What's fascinating about that to me when you say that, 70%, if they're putting their focus on that, and when I see what they're doing, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. That was part of what made us kind of go this direction. I mean, anybody can just throw up Facebook ads, but, Facebook ads, but part of what's made us very successful with Mind Pump Media was we we brought that community feel of touching people in a virtual sense. Yeah, yeah. Right. And we talk about this on the show a lot. Like we're in this uh, era right now or this generation coming up that they're, they're just searching likes or follows or more people 
where we try and tell people like, you're better off having 10 people that you impact all 10 of their lives than having 1,000 people that just are here to look at your photos or whatever. Yep, yep. And I feel like a lot of companies are, they know that you know they need to be in the digital space and they know they need to be marketing on Facebook, but a lot of them really aren't doing it the well. impact. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a space you can spend a lot of time on and it's really interesting. So as an example, I own a piece of an esports company and I don't know if you spend a lot of time around esports, but it's where kids today yeah. spend most of their time. I've got a 13-year-old. I can't get him off of Fortnite. I mean, he'll put <laughs> oh, no. 10 hours a day in if you let him. My son and too. my 10-year-old is just as good. He'll put in six, eight hours of Fortnite. They love it. They play with their friends on headsets, and they have camaraderie yelling at each other to pick up weapons and kill. Uh, <laughs> so you get a kick out of it. But esports is this monster business where you know hundreds of millions and probably billions of kids around the world are playing. And we, we have an investment in our company's called Energy. It's a, it's a big platform. We're in about 10 different games where we, it's like a professional sports team. We have kids that, that get paid on the payroll. They get a share of the prize money. And then we have sponsors that back it from Amazon to banks to everything you can think of. Mm-hmm. And there's some games, uh, Overwatch, you know, 100 million people playing. League of Legends, 500 mil- million people playing. 500 million people playing. And that's all in this social media digital space where they communicate in a different way. And if you take a look at this uh, Gen Z that's coming now, the 96, the people born after 96, pretty much they're heavily wired and everything is predicated on visual imagery through Instagram and Facebook and everything that they see in life is around you know, I love you, you look beautiful, great job. <laughs> Very positive environment. Yeah. And so the world is it's changing and evolving and you take my 16-year-old, he was very heavy into that, but now he's like, you know, trying to get his social footprint down to a point where you don't even see him. So they kind of swing in and out. It's kind mm-hmm. of changing there too a little bit, whereas they get a little bit older, they get a little bit more worried about the the visibility that they have in front of all their peers and friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool to see yeah. your kid go through that then because they yeah. are growing up in a different time right now. Yeah. Where, totally different. Where, where they're social online, but then some of these kids, they get in person and they've lost a lot of their social skills because they didn't have to develop them at a young age. So yeah. to see that you have a teenager that's kind of gone through that and is now cares about getting out in front of people is cool. Great book for that is uh, iGen. I just read that not that long ago, and it talks all about that generation, breaks down all kinds of great statistics. Something else I wanted to ask you about when I got you was um, the process that you went through when you almost bought the Sacramento Kings. Well, I did buy it. Oh, you did. So yeah. you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, th- I thought you I thought you didn't. I thought you were going to buy them, and then it didn't happen. Yeah, so, so originally I bid on the Warriors, and I lost that right. to Joe Lacob. Okay, that's right. So uh, we had a group that we bid, and we got down to the finals, and Joe ended up you know, we blinked at the end, didn't want to go to that number, and Joe went and got it. So he's done a phenomenal job ever since. And then Sacramento came up. And so originally I was partnered with Ron Burkle to buy the team and Vivek Ranadive. And then Ron um, had, a, had a bump out because he had a conflict with the NBA. He had a, a relativity media, had a group inside there that represents some NBA athletes. And there's a bylaw that you can't do that. So Ron couldn't um, get rid of that. So he had to step out. So Vivek ended up taking the lead role, and um, I invested alongside him and, and a bunch of other guys, and we bought Sacramento Kings. Uh, yeah. How's that? Do you go to a lot of games right yeah. now? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big basketball fan, so I want to come out there and come bug hey, you Anytime, let me know. I All got right. tickets. No All worries. Right. <laughs> that I can do. But, yeah, we, we have a very young team. Uh, we had the two pick in the draft this year, so we took uh, Bagley, who's fantastic, and we have a, 
almost a collegiate team, very young team with a couple of good pros, Zach Randolph and others, but we'll be young this year. Yeah, yeah, Excellent. you guys are. Very cool. Well, this is, uh, I have to say, of all the guests that we've had on the show, and we've had some guests with huge footprints and big voices, and I've learned a lot from every single person. I was most excited about having you on because my early years in the company that you created really started uh, the forging process to make me who I am. And I know my two co-hosts can echo the same thing. We called 24-Hour Fitness School. That was mm-hmm. our school. Mm-hmm. I was only there for a few years, but it, you know, later on I opened and owned my own wellness facility and then eventually you know, now we started this. I didn't know these guys uh, at 20. We never had met until afterwards, but a lot of the, the things that we talk about, what we learned, the systems that we put in place, mm-hmm. uh, we learned uh, from the culture that you had originally created. So I want to yep. thank you for that. And um, it's really surreal having you sit here. It's like full circle. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. You guys have done a phenomenal job. And you know, I think we always felt that we were a training ground to teach. And that's why we had you. We were going to teach the best we could. And we'd find out what you wanted to learn and, and try and give back as best we could because we knew that we would spring a lot of bright people into entrepreneurial opportunities. And you guys have done that. So we're really proud of what you've done and happy and excited to see it. And we'll watch you continue to grow. And when you dominate the podcast sphere and YouTube and everything else, we'll be able to say that we learned from you. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Right? All right. We'll Excellent. learn from you. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you, Mark. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now, plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump.